Hello and welcome to True Love No Shame, a podcast on recovering from Christian purity culture. I'm Danny Finkhauser, author of Shameless, How I Lost My Virginity and Kept My Faith. You can learn more about my book at shamelessthebook.com. I'm here today with Jamie DeWolf, founder of Tourette's Without Regrets, an underground performance art show in Oakland. So, uh, Jamie, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm such a, a big fan of the show, which you've, you've had it going for, what, 10 years now? Whoosh, uh, <laughs> longer than that. Uh, we had just celebrated our 15 year anniversary. Oh, 15. Oh. Yeah. It's even a, it's a, yeah. little, it's a little muddier than that. Kind of depends on where we start it, but, uh, I really started it like 1999. So I've been doing mm-hmm. some kind of crazy incarnation forever. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and you do some other, like, and you do some, um, documentary stuff. You do other, uh, creative stuff around Oakland as well. Yeah. So I'm a filmmaker, storyteller. I do slam poetry myself and I'm performing at the Snap Judgment live at the Paramount Theater tomorrow. I do a lot of films for You Speaks, um, do different music videos, short films, all the crazy stuff. So just keep, mm-hmm. keep it cracking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I, my friend just told me about Tourette's. I think the first one I went to was over this past summer. Um, and it's like, it's so hard to describe to people what it is. I always kind of say, well, it's a variety show. And so there's usually some like burlesque, there's usually some sort of like aerial, there's, you know, sometimes like magic, like, is that, does that sound about what you would say the theme is or how do you usually describe it to people? The theme of Tourette's? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's alternatively been described as the Island of Misfit Toys, the uh, fun house for fanatics, the fight club of underground art. I mean, I kind of view it as really just the oldest form of variety show that there is, which is like vaudeville in a very contemporary mm-hmm. Oakland edge. So, I mean, we have everything from circus to comedy to burlesque to battle rap to beatboxers, break dancers, aerial performers, slam poets, dirty haiku bouts crazy audience contests and all of that. I mean, it's, it's really like where highbrow art and lowbrow smash together in one demolition derby. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the haiku battle is like the perfect example of that. I've never seen that anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't invent that. That was actually from the national slam. They had a haiku battle and I just thought it was hilarious as a way to start a show. So we, we really uh-huh. slanted it towards the dirty haiku battle and what's awesome about it is that even if they suck, it's over quickly and right. the perfect structure to kind of like warm up the crowd in terms of where the show is going. Um, you know, I mean, and it's it's changed over time, but I mean, the Dirty Haiku bout has pretty much always been a staple because it really mm-hmm. people sort of warmed up on the fact that, you know, you're going to hear, quote, offensive language. But I think some of it is is also even just challenging the idea of like, what is offensive? Like, why stop? I just call it something offensive. Actually, we had to change one of our opening rules to the show. One of the rules says, be offended. And as I tell the audience is that I hope you're offended by something because to be offended is actually the start of a conversation, not the end of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's the way that people even reflect on bad words or bad language. Uh, someone who grew up Christian in particular is that I've been really obsessed with why are these words even bad? They're pretty much all references to bodily functions, bodily fluids, et cetera. There's a real renunciation of the flesh. And I think that that is, is carried through through all of our language and a lot of the way that we interact about what's offensive. So the Dirty Haiku Bout is kind of a fun way to just sort of open that up. 
Yeah, that's such a fascinating thought. I know. Um, I mean, I didn't use swear words growing up. And like, I still feel weird when I do just because it was such like a, a thing that I like wasn't supposed to do. It's, it's I, funny. I remember the day that I said my first cuss word and it was in the sixth grade. It took me uh -huh. to say a single cuss word and it was a, a real peeling off of the bandaid type experience. So yeah. And Obviously, uh, that sort of opened the floodgates. <laughs> then I just cussed yeah. like a sailor ever since. Well, I like that you mentioned um, the offensive rule because the first time I heard of the event, I was like, isn't Tourette's like a condition? Is it like it kind of like politically incorrect to call something the name of this? So I'm curious, where did the name come from? The name actually came from me getting kicked out of every open mic because of language in particular. Mm, um, okay. I was a really, really suicidal young man. And I'd, I was actually coming through this incredibly, uh, just totally abysmal low point in my life. And I was basically writing these incredibly incendiary and, and vulnerable pieces about, about trying to survive through this kind of suicidal period. And, and people would kick me out because I had bad words in it. And that was so infuriating to me that, that all of this, like, exorcism that I was trying to do uh, and all that, which, you know, in retrospect was absolutely selfish to sort of purge onto an audience, but I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know where else to go. I didn't really have any venues or outlets. And so show after show, these, these were tiny little open mics, but they would kick me out. And there's a sense that I had of that these mics aren't really open, you know, that people don't want to hear the full range of, of emotion. And especially if it gets into kind of dangerous territory, for this kind of really quiet teacup culture. And so that was how I started the show was basically a the anything goes open mic where, you know, all kinds of expression were allowed and encouraged because I just saw that there was this real lack of intersection from poetry to comedy and hip hop and theater and a lot of other worlds that I loved. And that poetry just seemed really, really behind that there was this aspect of that this is a much more genteel, sort of safer form of expression. And I resented that with every fiber of my being. So, so I started Tourette's to basically celebrate all different kinds of expression and, and everything from MCs to songwriters to comedians and, and really just, it kind of started with um, verbal expression as sort of a base. And then that quickly blew up into taking on all different kinds of, performance that are relatively stripped down i mean we we don't really book bands we pretty much book folks that it's really just them and their body and their mouth that's it i mean whether they're burlesque or a circus performer or whatever i mean there's there's really not a lot of magic involved in in terms of what they're bringing to the stage there's not a lot of electronics or you know anything else it's it's very much a showcase that we've had shows have had to move to a parking lot and a lot of times we can still pull it off so it just really depends Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that really shows in terms of like, when you, when you go to the show, you just feel like everyone is welcome, um, you know, probably because of that. And I think that's really interesting. I actually, I used to go to this church in New York that met in a bar and it was kind of like, the idea was, you know, it's a bar. It's like, you didn't do like your typical worship music. It was just kind of like the, the speaker. And um, for some reason, I almost felt like, to put together to be there because uh, everyone was kind of like you're like a misfit for church but then like I found myself kind of like dressing down to 
go to it. And so it's it's kind of strange, like how, how I didn't feel welcome in that environment. But I, yeah, I think kind of what you're saying is like, um, it is truly like open and like based on the type of performances it it feels like a, a safe space for everyone. And it's actually based off church. I mean, the opening of this, the show is, is ostensibly really exactly like church. I mean, it is. You know, I mean, to, to hug someone that you don't know and try to just just encourage a sense of community of like, no matter how crazy this is, that we're all in the same room. We're all going to go through this experience together and then also lay down hard ground rules in terms of what we expect. And, you know, some of those are are literally about respecting the performers, respecting consent and then also uh, being a part of it and giving love to all the performers that go on stage. And that, you know, if you just take different sound bites from our show, um, people might think it's the most rowdy, raucous show on earth, but actually, I mean, it's, it, and it has those moments, certainly, but I mean, like, we don't have fights in the audience. We never had a shooting and doing a show in downtown Oakland for over 10 years without having any kind of fight or altercation like that. I credit a lot of that to, the environment that we really insist on creating at the beginning of the show. And I find that people who haven't been in that kind of environment, um, they might even be uncomfortable with it because they, it feels like it's, it's in a world that they don't quite understand. But I mean, once they, the show gets going, I think that they really get it. They're like, this is really a celebratory show. It's um, um, even in being quote, offensive in certain realms it's really being celebratory it's it's being you know celebrating humor and expression and and uh bodies and being queer and weird and mutants and just being strange and and doing your thing and you know i mean it really relies on that old comedy rule of punching up you know what i mean so there's there's that element as well but a lot of it is yeah based off church i mean at the end of the show i stand there and i shake everybody's hand as they walk out and that was just like every pastor when I was a kid. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I've been to a lot of church services, have given a lot of like awkward handshakes and yeah, like I got an actual like warm, tight hug from like a stranger at Tourette's, you know, like it's very, you know, like church done right. Yeah. I mean, we do have a little more of an undercurrent of some of, some of Oakland's velvet wrap fist. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes you have to give them rules that you really wish you didn't even have to say out loud. But there was a show, I think it was like three, four months ago that we've been doing the opening hug for a hug a stranger for years. And someone just grabbed this girl's boobs who is part of the Tourette's. Uh, I don't know what the language is like on your show. So I feel really absurd. Boobs, oh, but it's that <laughs> breasts. They grabbed her breasts um, right in the right in the very start of the show. She ended up socking two guys. They both uh -huh. socked both of them in the face. They were kicked out of the show immediately. And then we had to add a new rule to every show after that, which is Asperger's. It was just like, you don't know these people. Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? But I'm just like, yeah. and it's a little sad that you feel like you have to even state that. But it clearly with, from the culture we live in and especially what's happened these days, it's uh, some people you need to make it as extreme as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so I want I want to get back to the consent thing, but first, um, so you also you grew up in evangelical church, right? Yeah, me and my mom kind of quibble as to which one had the most impact, but it it varied from sort of Baptist to Pentecostal to I'm mm. not sure what she would kind of go from church to church looking for a spot, and I really really internalized all of Christianity 
at a very young age and, and was very, very impressionable and, and passionate about it. And for many years, I wanted to be a, a minister myself. And I was a classic archetypal devoted Christian kid. I mean, I would literally, you know, tithe some of my allowance and send it to missionaries who were working with cannibals in the Congo. Uh, I was particularly mm -hmm. obsessed with that for a while and trying to get letters back from them and making sure they didn't get eaten. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I just absolutely would try to minister to kids on the playground and read the Bible studiously and, and really talk to Jesus as my invisible friend really all the way up until the seventh grade. So, I mean, it was really hardwired into me. And some of that is, I just think maybe is the way I was built. Uh, you know, my brother, who's a year and a half younger than me, he went to the same churches and it never had that same kind of an impact. You know, I mean, he went to Sunday school and he knew the stories and all that, but I don't think he was walking around talking to Jesus every day, you know, when he's out playing on the tire swing. So for me, it was a very, very devotion. It was a I was very devoted and to a point where when I started asking harder questions, I was asking from a Christian perspective and I was not understanding the answers that I was be, being given. And it, it, it was past logic and really past faith. I mean, just some of it just fundamentally didn't seem fair or, or fair from a God that I would want to give my life to. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, it was similar. It was, um, more in college, but yeah, it was kind of out of like enthusiasm about faith and learning more about it that like, I kind of started to uncover stuff that just didn't make sense. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then that's when you start to get into the, uh, take it and leave it style of Christianity, which I frankly just don't really accept. I mean, I, I have a big problem with Christians who, like to sort of soft pedal how utterly homophobic and misogynistic the Bible is at its root. And that I think that Christianity is a very convenient sort of good cop, bad cop on if you want to condemn homosexuals, you get to quote the Old Testament. You want to say that we should ask for forgiveness for the latest, uh, you know, minister caught in a hotel room with a male prostitute, then it's let's go the Jesus route, start talking about forgiveness. And so there's a real inherent contradiction to a lot of it. And, but I think also it's the duality of it that has, for the most part, that that's what I've really been adamant about kind of removing from my mental state. Um, and I think that so much of America is really rooted in that sort of black and white absolutist way of thinking that I've endeavored every day since to really remove that and to stop thinking in things of, in terms of good and evil, you know what I mean? That, that. I don't believe that that's the way the universe works. Um, you know, I mean, that there's it's usually not just as simple as predator or prey. I mean, nearly everything is both predatory and prey and devour something else to survive, you know, on and on. And this idea that there's only one way you can go, either heaven or hell or you're a saint or a sinner and that there's no in between, uh, I think, is a really kind of disturbing pathology. And I think causes a lot of just a real schizophrenic mindset in the American. Mm hmm. And especially that way when it yeah, comes to sexuality, of course, it's it's like it's just literally one or the other. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. and I think that's incredibly destructive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to kind of like reading the the Bible literally, and people get abstinence from verses, but it's also a book that was written in a really patriarchal 
culture where women were seen seen as property and like that's that's why they're describing it in that way because a, a woman was like a piece of property that went from like her father to her husband. absolutely and i mean i think that when you really go back and look at the formation of the bible if, if you are if if a christian is allowed to accept for just an hour that perhaps perhaps a divine being in the sky did not ghostwrite every single word of this book that has also been translated a myriad of times by many, many powerful white men. Um, but if we perchance entertain the idea that the Bible is really a historical mixtape in some degree, and you look at the Nicene Council, you look at uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you look at when the Gnostics were still writing their own um, chapters and their own, their own, their different apostles that weren't accepted. The the larger truth that I've, I've you know that I've read over and over and, and been really obsessed about is that that there actually was a very strong aspect of femininity as divinity early on, and it was really just pushed out. I mean, it was it was written out, um, and that to me is something that is is pretty disturbing and is unforgivable in my eyes in terms of you know that you have there is. The Mother Mary and, and the Virgin Mary and, and whatnot is like she's actually still not on the same level as God. And some people, you can't worship her in the same way in, in many different branches of Christianity. You can respect her. You know, she's great. Thanks for being here, Mary. But like you're not allowed to actually worship her in any real way and to take away that duality of masculinity and femininity on purpose is a testament to it as a controlling patriarchal device. And that's what I think is dangerous about it. And if you look back in Dead Sea Scrolls, if you look back at the Nicene Council, there are many different, uh, you know, factions and, and, and sects that wanted and worshiped the Virgin Mary as a, a character that was really on the same level as this sort of divine uh, heavenly father. You had a heavenly mother as well. And, and they're like, nope, we ain't doing that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, just the way that even Eve is blamed for the apple in the Garden of Eden. And I was just like, really? I was like, you think if there was a forbidden fruit that the woman would be the one that would screw that up? Like, <laughs> I just think in our guts, there's a fair amount of that that just feels utterly absurd. I'm like, no, nah, that's definitely a man thing. You're like, hey, you're all good forever. Okay, this is paradise. This is literally paradise. Don't fuck this up. Just don't eat that one apple. I'm pretty sure it was the guy who was like, I'm going to eat that shit. I'm eating that. Come on. What's the big deal? I'm eating it. You know? <laughs> totally. Um, Doing this forever so, for all time. So what did, your, uh, what did your parents tell you about sex? Or what was kind of like your education growing up? Sadly, uh, yeah. And this is like a psych, you know, psychological field day is I don't recall ever really getting a good talk. I was really raised by a single mom and I discovered this storehouse, this, this like massive pile of hardcore pornography in the dumpster. And I was so confused by what I was seeing that I remember vividly my sexual consciousness thought that women had that, that the vaginas that I were seeing were actually surgically removed penises and that that was the hole that was left. That was all I understood about it. And I didn't know why anybody would want to subject themselves to that. Uh, I didn't understand what the interactions were, but I remember being really feverishly obsessed with trying to understand this, but, but not feeling I could have any sort of safe place or, or 
time to ask my mom. That was an incredibly fearful thing. And I, and I, I understood that this poem was like, you know, plutonium and, and I had to hide it in the woods and, you know, would run out and study it and just didn't understand the reaction I was having to seeing it and, and trying to understand it. And it was only when my mom got remarried that she sat us down in like an IHOP. <laughs> they just, uh-huh. they just decided that was the time place. and they were like, because they had gotten married and there was a couple times that I would, you know, hear sounds coming from the bedroom and I would freak out and I would run and knock and ask on the door. And like, I thought my mom was being hurt, you know, and she's like, honey, I'm fine. I'm doing great. You know? And, and so I, I didn't, I, I had like a fundamental abyss in terms of understanding what any of this was. And I, you know, I, I just I remember asking her even just stupid shit like, you know, like, so why, what is a blow job that they blow on their, on your penis? And what is, what is that for? And she's like, no, they don't exactly blow on it. You know, um, <laughs> but I had a, I had a profoundly undeveloped sexual consciousness for a long time. And, you know, that was like, kind of kept from me. I didn't really have a lot of people from church I could ask about. And it was really sort of a slow growing kind of sense. And then like a lot of kids would find out more from, you know, kids at school and then like the porn mag that would get handed around and then just trying to understand it. And I think a lot of kids didn't understand what the hell we were looking at, but there's always the kids that want to act like they know it all and, and are telling you completely insane information uh they're just make it up but uh because nobody wants to admit that they don't know anything you know and it's wild mm-hmm. i mean in these days of the internet i have no understanding of how kids consciousness is impacted by internet porn and its accessibility at such an early age yeah yeah i mean my my parents just kind of skipped over it and i guess hoped i would figure it out somewhere else so we never had any kind of sex talk um and I actually only found out that I had a clitoris when I was like in my early twenties. So that was, that was a, a fun oh. time, <laughs> but, but actually like, that's what's, uh, that's one thing I've noticed about purity culture is I know that like, I went to, you know, at church services, like they would talk about, like, here's how to tell your boyfriend that you can't have sex and like that you should wait till you're married. And like, if your boyfriend loves you, he'll wait and, um, and described men as like, they'll say anything to have sex, um, basically, which is a very sad description of men, um, which actually kind of like leaves out the entire concept of consent. If, if like they're presenting it in sort of this, like men will trick you in order to well, have sex. Yeah, it, um, it really comes down to that whole general concept of the devil is always using sex as sort of your weakest link of temptation. And it also is making virginity itself like a uh, coveted sort of, you know, sacred little magical ball that you have to like hold and clutch onto as long as you can and that everyone's going to take it. And I think that there's some virtues to that. I mean, I think that there's there's an aspect of, um, you know, of of watching out for predatory men that, uh, you know, that this is something that you need to retain as long as you can i i can understand the base of that i mean i think that there's some good instincts in some aspects of christianity but i mean i don't agree with it in its application um i think that viewing sex as 
such a dangerous battlefield and putting it um, in people's mind is this, this there's it's, it's the entire concept of Christianity is basically that your flesh and body are basically a puppet and that your puppets on a stage and that there's, you know, Satan and there's God on, they're both in the audience and Satan's the one with the megaphone yelling and heckling you trying to make you fuck up. But ultimately it doesn't matter what you do on the stage. As long as you accept, you know, Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, you ask for forgiveness. So that's one. So you have a sort of sweet moral out for any of your actual actions, but also that there's just that, that the world and earth is really just a, a morality play. I mean, it's, it's that, it's it's like a video game and you have to pick how you're going to live or, or survive because the only life that really matters is the one after death, which is a very convenient spiritual carrot on the stick. You know, and so that's something that I've I've always had an issue with is that it, it can become an element of control. And I think that when it comes to virginity and sexuality, that's a huge element of it as well. I mean, I think that there's all aspects of these kinds of morality that started as as forms of control. Um, in terms of just trying to keep people in line, you know what I mean? Of like, you can't do this. Don't do that. This is a really bad idea. We'd really appreciate it if, you know, you, you don't steal and burn and kill and, you know, et cetera. So, but I really don't think that you've ever needed the Bible to tell people that. I mean, it's, it's always mm -hmm. trotted out as, is like, well, what about the good things in the Bible? I mean, like, I'm, I really pretty, pretty sure about every village that gets together, they kind of agree in a few basics, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're pretty much always centralized around some of those, those basics. So. Right. Like it, it makes sense. Like back before there was birth control or protection, it was a good idea to not sleep with a lot of people, but, but yeah, it's, it's sort of like, you know, is this still a moral standard now that we have access? Right. To and to be, things? and to be choosy, uh, which I think is fair. I mean, like I'm, I, you know, I have a daughter myself and I'm certainly not going to encourage her to be a virgin until marriage. And I won't lie, I turn into an utter coward in terms of talking to her about sexuality. I mean, I'm <laughs> real. She's 18 now and she's had boyfriends and stuff. But like, you know, I, her mom is is a much more valiant soldier in that era. I mean, like me and my daughter have we talked about sex, but like I just don't want to ask too many questions. I don't want to be invasive of her privacy, um, you know. I say kind of the typical dad things like if any man is treats you wrong, like I'm going to beat the shit out of him. You know, I mean, I, I say all that kind of gruff dad stuff. But I mean, uh, when it comes to her own sexuality, I mean, I think to some degree that that isn't my business if 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 she's doing it with, you know, with people who respect her and it's obviously consent and and everything else. But I mean, I think there's a certain level of like uh, it's not mine to control. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the issue though, is that where does this verge from some sense of communal standards for just like recommendations and then absolutes, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, the instances of, well, and also what's even more dangerous in stuff like the Bible is the sexually empowered woman, you know? So that is a, is a very different category. I mean, like, I think when it comes to the virginity, we can argue that, um, you know, maybe there's some positive attributes, but ultimately it should be the woman's choice, of course. Um, but, you know, when it comes to sexually empowered women and you see this over and over in 
American society is there's this sort of fascination slash condemnation at the same time um, because I think it's terrifying to uh, people try to regulate that kind of sexuality. A woman who's just like, I'm going to fuck who I want. And that's that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's mm -hmm. usually the first one that they try to tie to the cross and light, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to um, consent and, and how that's uh rule at Tourette's. So I found that so interesting because I know I've had countless experiences where like I'm in a crowded bar and someone like even something small, like someone walks by and they'll like cup their hand on my waist as they like yeah. walk by. And it's like, you could, you could put your hand on my shoulder, you know? And it's like, it's, it's so fast and so small that it's like, it, it feels strange. Like I've never had the guts to actually be like, Hey, don't do that. Um, because I feel like they would just be like, Oh, I was just walking, you know? So, but it was, I think that's why it struck me so much when you like opened with that as a rule, because it was like, Oh, well, finally, like, finally it's, I'm like allowed to be like, Hey, like that's crossing the line. Like, don't touch it. It's me. just, the thing is too, is that before any man starts defending him, like, Oh, what? I can't be flirtatious. Like, let's be really clear that this is almost like 99% is from some fucking dirt bag that you don't even know. You know what I mean? It's a guy you don't know, you haven't talked to, some guy who just thinks he's some fucking magical Don Juan or something in his own mind. And yeah, these dirtbags just exist. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's just so unnecessary. And I mean, I mean, to me on an even harder edge level, I mean, I was molested when I was a kid. Every girlfriend I've had pretty much except for two, but literally every single one of them have all been molested and many of them violently raped. I mean, it's, it's rape is a epidemic. And I mean, to me, it's, it's stunning that so much of America is waking up to that. You know what I mean? It's, it's that everywhere and everywhere that I've, I've seen ever since I was really just a young teenager and found out what had happened to me and found out what had happened to all my friends and, and what was still going on and so forth. So yeah, some guys, just really need some sort of extreme slap in the face to just be like, this isn't all right. You know what I mean? Like you can flirt with someone without making them feel profoundly uncomfortable. And I think in general is this sort of sense that men are kind of like working magic or like trying to seduce women, I think is just kind of generally bullshit. I, I view that it's like, I view that women generally have decided a long time ago if, if you have any chance or at all once you start even opening your mouth and really that you're what you should be doing is trying not to fuck that up. If they decided like, all right, I might I might go some, you know, hang out with you or whatever. Is that like you're kind of starting from, um, uh, you know, a good spot? Uh, I would hope. I don't know. I mean, it, it's just that any any of these touchy feely guys that are. And that manner, especially to strangers, all the girls who go crowd surfing and some guy grabs him and, and just, yeah, I mean, I just really want to sock them all in the face. I just don't, sometimes I just, I've never had that instinct to just like grab strangers like that. Um, you know, but I was also worked in a really like kind of highly sexualized um, performance community where lines can get blurry. There's a lot of like, um, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of, 
backstage uh, shenanigans. But I think that a lot of people have to learn early on is that there's a lot of lines that you just can't cross. You can't make people feel uncomfortable backstage. Um, if someone's getting a dress, you don't know, look at them, you know what I mean? And, and, and all that, I mean, and, and also just like, just don't touch people. You don't fucking know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like a lot of these conversations are super simplified. If you ask a homophobic guy and you're like, okay, so you're super homophobic. And they're like, yeah, yeah, super homophobic. And you're like, great. I hope that works out for you. So imagine if I walked up and I grazed you with my hand or cupped your ass or something like that, would you want to turn around and punch me in the face? If the answer is yes, and you're doing that kind of action to a woman, then yes, you are absolutely 100% in the wrong. And I feel like some of these yeah. guys should probably get punched in the face. I mean, I think that we're at a huge turning point in society, which I think is is gratifying to see is that it's okay for men to be scared um, that they're not going to get away with some dumb shit. Um, that's oftentimes to some men that's that that's really the only the only thing that's going to correct that behavior that's why we have law enforcement that's why we have jail sentences but i mean you know now it's it's going to be pretty extreme for a while um but i'm glad that we've already had rules in place like that for a while at Tourette's because when we when the show was smaller when we we're starting out the stuff wasn't really much of an issue because a lot of people kind of knew each other in some way or another they're apart from you know different communities and sort of coming together but when your crowd gets up to like you know 500 800 900 people some people in, in dirtbags try to really use the anonymity of a crowd or they just just don't seem to get like what kind of world they're in and so some of those rules as extreme as they are um you know, I mean, are, are really just letting people know, like, that is not that world. You know what I mean? We are not at a club dance floor. This is not a fucking Super Bowl party. This is not, uh, you know, a high school locker room. This is none of that, none, none of those things. And also, I mean, there's, there's a lot of burlesque performers and circus performers and all that who are wearing all kinds of awesome, fabulous outfits, you know what I mean? And they don't need grabbed or anything else. I mean, I mean, and, and that, that can happen. I mean, I've been in clown troops where, I mean, we're all literally dressed as crazy clowns and, um, you know, admittedly risque clowns. Sure. But, um, one of the jobs that we would do is like walk arounds. And there was uh, a friend of mine who was, you know, five feet tall and she had on this kind of like shorts where like, um, you know, she like was wearing this like little dress and all these stripes and all of this clown stuff. And even women would just come up for like a picture and just like spank her on the ass super hard. And it was completely out of nowhere. You didn't know why it was even happening. It was even coming from other women. There was no way that she provoked it or, or they asked or anything like that. And she almost got in a couple fist fights as a clown because people are just like, you're just like, they're not a cartoon character. You know what I mean? Like they're just like you. And it's the same as if someone dresses up and is going out, like they didn't dress up for you. You know what I mean? They dressed up, um, hopefully for really just one for themselves and to, to, you know, feel in charge of themselves and to feel strong and feel sexy and flamboyant. Um, or maybe their date or a friend or whatever, but they sure as fuck did not dress like that for the sleaze bag at the bar. <laughs> you know, what I mean? so, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, some of them you're just like, God damn, man, you haven't learned this shit yet. You know, I mean, like, look, we every everyone everyone is on a different learning curve, but um, you know, and there's also just kind of there's predators in every community, no matter how benevolent. And so, um, you know, that's just that's just the nature of it. And so, I think that once you kind of really are very clear and upfront about those sort of boundaries. Uh, you really kind of establish mm-hmm. like, all right, like this is, yeah, we're not going to be gray area about this. Like if someone does this to you, the host of the show is encouraging for you to start fucking them up in the audience. And that's that. And I'm like, you've been warned, you know, it's not like we're going to, you know, we're yeah. not going to like discuss this. It's not going to be a court thing. It's just like, if you don't know someone and you grab their ass, like they, they are completely encouraged to turn around and sock you in the face. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, mm-hmm. in contrast, I haven't had many men who just got socked in the face for no reason. Really? No, no one has gotten socked in the face since that incident. Uh, thank God. And, um, you know, just sometimes shit like that can happen. I mean, also, you know, people get sloppy. Yeah. They, they, you know, they get drunk. I've been a bartender for a while. I've had women, you know, jump on me and grab me all over. And like, you know, my girlfriend's there and they're like grabbing me and like trying to lick my ear. And you know what I mean? Like, so there's a certain degree where you're like, no, no. You know what I mean? Uh, you gotta, you gotta yeah. be firm. <laughs> so Totally. Yeah. And I think it applies on dates too. And like, just thinking of, um, the audience of this podcast in terms of like people like me who might have started having sex later in life, like, what would you say is the etiquette around either initiating sex or declining it, um, in terms of like just being really clear that everyone involved has. Consent? Well, that's a good question because of, you know, what's going on these days. Right. Um, in terms of, I mean, one, I think everybody should be careful to never put themselves in a position where they don't feel safe. So, I mean, if you have any doubt, just don't even go in someone's bedroom. You don't even go to their house. You know what I mean? If, if you have to, I mean, if you have glimmer of doubt, I mean, sometimes it's, that's not enough, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably best to just like the moment that some people think, all right, I got consent. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's time to go. Um, I think you should just keep going in terms of beats of really establishing like way beyond a shadow of doubt that consent is, is absolute. You know what I mean? That it's, it's that you are both in agreement. This is both something you want to do. And also that you're in a good state to do it. You know, um, I've certainly have left houses where girls were super intoxicated and I was like, no, this is not what we should do. You know what I mean? I'm, and, uh, um, you know, it doesn't make me heroic or anything else. It just, it's just like, it's just something you shouldn't do. I don't want to have, uh, that kind of, of sex, you know what I mean? And, and, um, I think that when it comes to consent, it just, it has, it just, I think that they, this generation in particular, the younger generation who, um, um, are really watching a lot of these dynamics change for, um, the better is, you know, it's like, how do you be as clear as possible, um, you know, early on and, um, having a lot of friends who are in the polyamory community and so forth is, is what's I've learned a lot from them is they discuss 
things a lot. You know what I mean? They have to be very articulate about where they're at, what they're looking for, what they want, what they don't want, you know, in terms of just their relationship dynamics. And I think people can learn a lot from that. I think that we have so much kind of fear and reluctance to talk about sex in general that I think that it's just at some point, if you're going to have the sex, I think you got to have a conversation about it first, you know, and hopefully that those things can become less awkward, you know, moving forward. Um, sometimes they can happen early on, but I mean, you know, you see over and over on dating sites and stuff, someone's on Tinder or whatever. And they're like, Hey, hi, how are you? And they're like, I'm good. Just making dinner dick pic sent immediately. And you're like, where the hell did that come from? Like, you know, just going from zero to 90 right away. And I think that, you know, people need to feel safe. Um, they need to feel clear. Um, and you know, that, that sex should not be the part that you fuck up. Um, you know what I mean? That should be a part that everybody's excited to do. You are, let's do it. Um, this is great. And you know, the relationship is, that should be the thing you fuck up. <laughs> that, that has its own issues down the line, but consent should never be something of confusion. It should never be ambiguous. And I think that if someone feels ambiguous on either way, you know what I mean? If a girl is drunk and she's like, come on over and you feel like she might not remember it the next day, then you should leave. You know what I mean? And you say, look, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it another time, you know, and and that's fine. Um, I mean, that's that's what should happen. And, you know, I think that there's even discussions now on just kind of drunken consent, period. And, you know, someone has been a bartender and, and has served a million alcoholics, you know, and, and so forth. I'm sure there's a lot of people, including myself, who woke up and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. Um, you know, where I'm, I'm even surprised uh, you know, in, in aspects like that. I mean, I've, I've woke up and, and women were having sex with me, like when I was passed out. So, I mean, there's, there's different layers, um, of, of consent. And I mean, that, that was, that was awful. That was really humiliating to me and, um, the whole nine. And so I think that in general, it's, it's really about a negotiation. I mean, it's like, if you can't negotiate, um, in a safe way that makes both pe people feel, um, safe moving forward, then you shouldn't be having sex. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's not going to get better from there. I mean, like you, you should be at that level of communication if you're going to go all the way, you know? And so I think that that is what's important about sex education and everything else is to not have so much shame uh, attributed to it. I mean, we have so much shame in discussing our sexuality, talking about masturbation, talking about fantasy, talking about, um, you know, what we want and what we kind of desire. And even some of our past experiences, there's so much shame about that, that I think that that shame and that secrecy actually can manifest itself in incredibly destructive and dangerous ways. You know, I think that, that people who are able to express themselves sexually in a healthy and upfront way, are going to be better partners. They're going to be, they're just, you're, you're just going to have a, a healthier and saner time, you know? And so I think with, with, um, I mean, one reason why I would never advocate virginity before marriage is it, to me, it blows my mind that there's been centuries of people getting married to people and then, uh, 
you know, you, if you don't have sex before marriage and then you find out on the wedding night that maybe sexually you're not that compatible, that's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm going right. to make a lifelong union with someone. I, I think the sexual arena is a pretty fair one to hope that you guys are kind of on the same page. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of in the, the same realm. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's, it's just like out of enthusiasm for, for marriage as like a lifelong commitment, you know, you actually want right. the marriage like, to it's work. It's not about and, marriage is not a business. It's not an investment. You know, it's supposed to be like, a, a, you know, a, a lifelong narrative, you know what I mean? that. And so if you want your partner in all things, I mean, I think if you over and over read what breaks, you know, couples apart. It's just like, so often it's like, you know, arenas like money and sex, you know, and just these arenas that we're really uncomfortable with. And if, and if you kind of can't be honest about early on, you're going to have massive problems down the road. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, th- I think in general is like the more honest and upfront that you can be, to your partner, the better your chances are going to be period because people know what they're signing up for. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing more bewildering when you are starting a relationship and you realize like, holy shit, I thought this was a love movie and this is actually going to be a action adventure horror comedy. I didn't didn't know this is what movie I was watching. All right. You know, when does it end? So, All right. Well, thanks so much, Jamie. And thank you all for joining us for True Love No Shame. If you can make it to Oakland on the first Thursday of a month, be sure to come to Tourette's. I promise you won't be disappointed. Thank you. We'll be back soon with more.